Matthew chapter 22 verses 23 through to 46. What I'll do is it's three. It's in three sections. I'll read each section um, before I speak about it. Um, so that seemed to be the best way to do it. So 20, 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies, having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And so also the second and the third down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And then it goes on to the next section. Now I can see you all again. So, who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were a wealthy elite. They were a small group of people who didn't believe in miracles. They were anti-supernaturalistic. So they wanted a realistic explanation for everything that happened. And they tended to only believe the first five books of the Bible, uh, written by Moses. The rest of the scripture they chose to ignore. They also chose to ignore bits of the first five books that they didn't like. So, in many ways, I guess they're a little bit analogous to our culture. We like an explanation for everything. We tend to explain away miracles. Oh, it was just timing, so it's just a coincidence. Or, um, oh, they were going to get better anyway. It wasn't our prayers that did that. It was just some fluke of genetics has made them get better. So we're, we tend to be a little bit like that, I think. Ignore the, the power of God. But they were a wealthy elite. So they were, they were powerful. There wasn't a lot of them, but... They had a lot of power. So their key thing, which the passage brings out, is that they didn't believe in the resurrection. There's lots of views about the resurrection around at Jesus' time, but the Sadducees didn't believe in it. And this is this story they use is probably one of their stock stories to rubbish the resurrection. Because this ruling from the Old Testament was about wives marrying brothers so that there would be an offspring to their brother. It was also a way of protecting the women because without children, that was your old age pension. That was how you looked after, how you were looked after in your old age. So without children, you weren't about to get looked after. So even though it's culturally a bit strange to think about someone, oh, my husband's dead, oh, now I'll go and marry his brother. Um, seems a little culturally odd to us. Um, it was there for a good reason. But anyway, they're saying, so... And it's a sort of a relevant question for us today. Lots of people have more than one husband or wife. In heaven, who will I be married to? Who will she be married to? Now, they're saying this is a conundrum. You can't answer it. There's no right answer. And Jesus says, well, 
First of all, you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the power of God. In heaven, relationships are going to be different. There's not going to be marriage per se like that. It doesn't mean to say there's not going to be loving relationships. It doesn't mean to say we won't know our husbands and wives, but it implies that we won't be married to them. The rules will be different in heaven. Exactly how they'll be different, I don't know. That's a lot more theology than I have. Um, They'll have a better body. That's not hard. And you'll look better too. That's also not hard. And you'll be a nicer person. person. Also not hard. So far we're not talking about the power of God here. That's a... So, but the, the Sadducees in denying the resurrection were denying the power of God. And I often wonder, do I do that? Do I deny the power of God? Do I rely on my own strength and look for explanations? Do I explain away the fact that some people have lots of conversions by the fact that they've just got the gift of the gab, they know how to talk to people, they know how to relate to people? Or do I ascribe it to the power of the Spirit? It's not necessarily Richard or Jeff's ability to speak that helps them lead people to Christ. It's they're they're in touch with the Spirit and the Spirit working through them. Maybe the Spirit could work through me. Oh no, I don't have the gift of the gab. I'm not that way inclined. Do I refuse to go to God to ask for things because I think, oh well, it's a matter of, eh, God wouldn't do that. Or is it God couldn't do that? Am I afraid to ask because I'm afraid that he'll He's not capable. It's difficult in, in our age to, to not be like that. In a, in, a, in a world where we can have the money to do mostly anything, we rely on our own strength a lot more than we have to rely on God. But, yeah, that's, that's something we need to struggle with. So Jesus then affirms the resurrection out of the first five books, which is the books of the Sadducees, um, believed in he says have you not read what God says he says I am the God of Abraham I am the God of Moses now I've read those passages and it would never have occurred to me to interpret them the way Jesus did that God at the time when he spoke was actually the God of Abraham and Moses that they were actually alive at that time when God was speaking affirming that there is a resurrection almost straight away which is a bit of an issue for me since I think you sort of die, go to sleep and wait till there is a second coming. So I'm, I'm re-evaluating my theology on that point after reflecting on this passage. Because <laughs> um, what God is saying there implies that that resurrection is straight away. He is the God of the living. So it also means if we're denying the power of God, do we rationalise the way the scriptures we don't like? I, I wonder sometimes. I read the passage about the young ruler who said, God says, sell all you have and come and follow me. My rationalisation, that to somebody else. God hasn't said that to me. I've seen no sign in the skies that said, John, sell all you have and come and follow me. Which is scary when you own stuff. It wasn't so scary when I was single and didn't own anything. Didn't have anything to sell. <laughs> That's right, didn't have anything to sell. I wasn't attached to anything. I hadn't I hadn't invested in anything. And yet we've invested in our lives. Would we be prepared, would we be prepared to leave it? Are there other scriptures that we struggle with? Um, 
do not worry about the future. I never used to worry about my superannuation. As it's getting closer to me needing to use it, I'm starting to worry a bit more about it. Am I really worried? Am I worrying about the future? Should I be preparing for the future? And I think there's a difference between preparing for the future and worrying about it. I prepare for it. Well, the government prepares for it by insisting I put money in super. Um, I save a little bit by not spending all the money that I get. So I'm preparing for it. Am I worried about it? I don't think I am. I'm not obsessed with putting all the money I possibly can in super. I'm not obsessed with putting money aside so that I have lots of money when I retire. I don't think I am. Of course, we often blind. In um, Jeremiah 79, 17, 9, we're told the heart is deceitful above all things. I will fool myself into believing what I need to believe. And sometimes I need to get other people to reflect on my life to tell me where I'm going wrong, where I've deceived myself. One of the, one of the agendas on my list of things to talk with Richard to, about this week, if he came up, he didn't, so I didn't have to talk to him, which is maybe much more comfortable. <laughs> Because I'm sure, I'm sure he will ask this question. He will answer the question honestly, and I probably won't like the answer. My question was going to be, Richard, which of these, in preparation for this sermon, because I'm only interested, I've got to prepare the sermon to probably, what are the passages you think I know about but I don't take seriously enough? Because I need other people to look into my life and help me see what I can't see myself. The truths that my heart deceives me. Yeah, John, you're okay. You're not worried about the future because... That might mean you have to take an action that you don't want to do and make you uncomfortable. And I think we're all a bit like that. There's passages that we're all uncomfortable with that we need others to reflect on our lives with and say, yeah, actually, maybe you need to consider this verse a little bit more. It's also true that we can deceive ourselves. If we have a really poor self-image, we can deceive ourselves and think we're not doing the right thing. Oh, look, I'm not outreaching enough. I'm not giving enough. I'm not doing enough. Maybe we need someone to reflect on a passage and say, actually, I think you're doing a really good job there, Dave. This, from what I see of your life, that's not an area you need to worry about. This one, on the other hand, <laughs> might be, you, might, you might need to spend more time on that. So don't worry about this thing you're doing well. Worry about this thing where you're failing. So the Sadducees would rationalise away the scriptures they didn't like. Same as the Pharisees. Their whole business about work. and They could get around all these rules because they knew how to do it. So I suggest you think about asking someone close to you who knows you pretty well when you've got time to hear the answer. Don't expect to be comfortable with it. And I suggest you don't try and make a response to it. Just hear the answer. Repeat back to them what they've said to you, what you've heard, and then go away and think about it and pray about it and see if there's things you need to address. The answer might be no. Or the answer might be yes, I do need to do something about that. And then they can hold you accountable to that as well when you reflect back to them later on how you process their answer. But don't expect that you'll know straight away whether they're right or wrong because you probably go, how dare you say that, Richard? How dare you? I'm not like that. <laughs> um, that probably means the answer was pretty close to home, actually. <laughs> so that's how, I would, that's how I reflected on this passage with the Sadducees and the way they would rationalise scripture away. Resurrection... Yeah, we're all pretty comfortable that there's a life after death. We've got a much more united view of life after death, I think, than what they had at that time. We've got more scriptures to reflect on, and we've got Jesus' words. So let's go on to the next section of the passage, which is the passage about the two commandments. Eyes back on. 
when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and foremost commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law of the prophets. This was a fairly regular discussion of the Pharisees talking about what was the greatest commandment. It was a trap for Jesus because if he said the wrong thing, they could accuse him of diminishing certain commandments and that would have given them some basis for being upset with him. But he correctly summarises the the two greatest commandments, which is the same answer a lawyer gives him when talking about the, the, um, the Good Samaritan in Luke. He asks the lawyer, what are the two commandments? And the lawyer gives the same answer. But then Jesus traps him and says, who's my neighbour? Is it the person next door? No, no, it's everybody. It's the people who don't like you. It's the people who do like you. It's everyone. So it says in one of the passages that you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind and your soul. What that's implying is it's your whole being. It's not just your emotions. It's not just your intellect. It's everything we are has to belong to God. We've got to choose to be with God. It's our entire loyalty. It's our entire being. Not some superficial thing that says, oh, yeah, I go to church on Sunday. That's cool. I'm with God. Yeah, that's cool. He doesn't have any impact on my life. I don't pay a lot of attention. But I'm with him. What's our whole loyalty? Do we put him in primary place in our lives? And it's good to know that because I sometimes look at people even within the church, people who are much more passionate than I am and think, oh, I'm not like that. Do I really believe in God if I don't cry when I read the scripture and read about Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice? If it doesn't affect me that way, am I really on board? I don't have a great conversion story. I was brought up in the church. My conversion story is incredibly dull. <laughs> it is. You laugh. You know, in my 61 years... Other than youth group, I've never ever been asked to share my testimony because the people who've heard it fell asleep. <laughs> but it is my story. I'm not saying that, and it's not one of these. But it's not one of these stories that you get lots of people to hear. Like Rich has got this great tale about how he was a footballer and he was on the on the road to success and he left it all behind for Jesus. That's the sort of stuff our commercialist environment love. That's the sort of testimonies they love. Nicky Cruz, you know, the guy from Crossing the Switchblade, sort of tests me, you know, I used to be a gang leader, I used to do all this bad stuff, and got converted, and I'm changed, and that's great. It's the stuff that draws crowds in. It's, got a, it's a good story, and that's fine. I guess I really loved Nicky Cruz's testimony. I was privileged to be able to go and hear him speak. He didn't speak about his life as a gang member when he gave his testimony. He spoke about what was happening in his head at that time. Because that's the stuff I could relate to. I can't relate to any of the stuff as a gang member. I, other than what I see on TV, I wouldn't have any idea what it means to be in a gang, what it means to go against the rules of the society I live in. But I can relate to, I was doing this stuff because I wanted to feel loved. I, I was doing this stuff because I needed to be accepted by people around me. That's the stuff I could relate to. And he, his testimony was great because it didn't glorify what he did. And he was very clear that he didn't want to talk about the deeds that he did. That wasn't the important thing in his testimony. 
The important thing was the fact that his life was turned around. In my last church, we had a guy who would have had a spectacular testimony, but he would never give it. Because he said, I don't want to bring glory to the devil. And what I did before I became a Christian was glorify the devil. And he says, I can't think of a way to tell my story that wouldn't make young people think, oh, that's cool, I want some of that. In fact, you had to know him a long time before he would share any of his story with you. All he would say was, I was a nasty person and I think I'm better now and that's what I want to be. I only want to tell you what God's done for me since the day I committed to Christ. He didn't want the glory that came with being asked to do the speaking circuit and talk about what he used to be like. And unfortunately, at that stage, I'd never, I hadn't heard Nicky Cruz, so I couldn't tell him how to tell his story in a way that would be helpful, which was a shame because he had a great testimony. His life really had turned around in a spiritual sense. Economically, it had, it had tanked um, pretty much, but he was all right with that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we want to be committed to God however we are, whether that's because we're passionate people or with all our passion, whether it's because we, if we're intellectual people, because with our intellect we want to study and be convinced that this is all where we're going, or whatever, whatever sort of person we are, we need to be fully convinced that we're on God's side. And then we need to love our neighbours ourselves. Well, that was always a problem for me when I was younger, because I didn't understand what the word love meant in that context. I didn't feel particularly pleasant about love about myself, didn't like myself, Still don't. Felt annoyed that I wasn't more sporty, wasn't smarter, wasn't better looking. Any number of things. Definitely not a not definitely not what I associated with love. It wasn't until oh, 25 years ago I came across the definition of love, which says to look out for the needs and interests of another as you would look out for yourself. That I understood that love didn't necessarily mean that I felt passionate about something. I love myself because when I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm cold, I put on a jumper. And that's the way we're supposed to look out for other people. If they're hungry, we should feed them. If they're cold and we can't, we should clothe them. And the same way we look after kids, you don't give people everything they ask for because that isn't always loving. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is say no. No, this won't help you if I give you food, because I know you spend all your money on drugs, and if I enable you by feeding you and your family, all you will do is keep, keep up your drug habit. And it's pretty tough to say no sometimes. Those of you who are parents know that. Sometimes it's tough to say to your kids, actually, no, struggle through it. Hands off, you've got to, you've got to deal with this yourself. Sometimes we say yes inappropriately, because it's much easier to say yes. I guess we've all run into kids whose parents say yes too often. Not very pleasant, some of them. They feel entitled. Everything's theirs. They have no problems in the world. And they don't have any problems. Their parents have answered all that. But they're not suited for success. So sometimes with God, he, when we pray, he says no. Because it's not necessarily good for us to get everything we want. And sometimes he allows us to struggle with the things that we've started ourselves. So they live with the consequences of our actions because that's the loving thing to do. And sometimes as Christians, that's what we need to learn to do. What is the most loving thing to do here? Maybe it is to help them. Maybe it's not. The story I've told a number of times, it's tough to walk, let, walk, let, 
let a friend walk out knowing that he's going to sleep in a car because he's got a dr bad drug habit, his family's fallen apart and he's asking for a place to stay. But if I'd given him one, it wouldn't have brought him to the place where he realised he really had a problem. Tough. It's, t it's a tough call to make. But what's the, tough, what's the decision we need to make? The other important thing about this passage is that there isn't just two commandments. These two commandments undergird all the other commandments. So we need to say, when we do anything, is it undergirded by either our love for God or our love for our neighbour? Anything. So when we're, in, when we're saying to people, well, Jesus says you need to live like this, is that statement and the way we enforce it guided by our love for them and our love for God? Or are we just being uh, religious so-and-sos enforcing rules on people that don't affect us? You know, do I... Do I need to say to people, you are late. You should be on time for God. Come on. Because, because that's the thing. I don't have any trouble with being on time. I have a bit of a problem being passionate about anything, but I don't have any trouble with being on time. So I'll focus on people being late because that makes me feel better. Or do I say, well, God has grace for me when I fail. Can I have grace for people who are five minutes late? I still struggle with it. I won't mention anyone who was late today, but I do know... <laughs> <laughs> so do we and it, I mean the classic for us is that I guess the debate about gay people and what they can and can't do within a church yes the Bible says that that's wrong but is that is the way we enforce that loving is the way we deal with those issues loving often it's not because dealing with them in a loving way requires a lot of work a lot of thinking, a lot of soul searching, say, what's what's wrong here and what's right here? What's acceptable? I mean, look at the people God hung out with when he was down on earth. They wouldn't have rated coming through the gate for a lot of us. They just wouldn't. We would have looked at them and go, I actually, no, no, no. Um, we're pretty uncomfortable with you sitting here. Um, you want to teach Sunday school as well because you've changed. Okay, well, that's... Um, that's a bit of excitement. You can imagine Mary Magdalene coming up to Nathan saying, I've changed. I want to teach Sunday school. Okay, um, we've got an interview process now with the Safe Churches stuff. So what was your job before you became... Oh, yeah, okay. Um, that's not a good question. Um, how do I know you've changed? Oh, I'm telling you I have. Lots of tough choices. Undergirding everything with love is hard work. Rules are much easier. Oh, sorry. No, you don't make the cut. Bad luck. Doesn't matter. That's not how Jesus treated it. He never apologised for saying that was wrong, but he dealt with people where they were at. Um, it's a skill we all need to practise because rules are much easier. I'm great at rules. I'm not so good at love. But I think that's, the, that's true for a lot of us. Rules are much easier. Yes, the last section. 40... Oh, that doesn't need to be undone anymore. Glasses again. Uh, verse 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thy enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. The Pharisees were looking for a Messiah. Jesus answers, points out to them that they uh, were looking for the wrong person. They had the wrong idea of who the Messiah was. For me, that that quote is interesting because it comes from Psalms. Psalms is poetry. Poetry is not actually really literature. It's just something you have to study at school to pass the exams. Um, So I always struggle with Psalms because I don't understand it. It's got all these pictures and I don't understand it. It's like, okay, um, good. I'll read something more interesting like Jeremiah or Chronicles or something I can understand I don't, I don't want to struggle through, through things like Psalms because they're just poetry and yet Jesus uses that poetry to point out that he is more than just the son of David that he's also the Lord that he is more than the Pharisees think he is I think that means when I reflect on it that he's more than what I think he is too what I think he is changes over the years has changed as I grow, as I understand more about him, as I relate more often, as I try to come to consider different views on these problems. Um, So what I believe changes, and I think even now, though, he's more than I think he is. However much my understanding of him has grown, he's more than I think he is. And I think that'll continue to be the case right up until I stop thinking. Whether that's from dementia or dying, I don't know. But at that point... I think I still won't understand who Jesus is and I need to be struggling to try and understand who he is and how he relates to me and my life and the people that I'm involved with and how he wants me to act in those cases. I think the same is true for you guys too. I think your understanding of Jesus needs to continually grow. You need to reflect on him in the culture that we're in, through the Bible, where he's he's called and what he says and through our better understanding as we grow older. So I guess I wanted to finish up to leave you the question to consider over the next couple of weeks as we lead up to Christmas when he's coming and saying, who is your Jesus? Who is it who came down on Christmas? And how is he different from who you think he was five years ago? How has your understanding of him changed? And where do you think it might be missing a bit? I mean, our culture wants to tell you that he's, he's a good teacher. And if you just say that Jesus is a good teacher, the culture will have no problem with you at all. He's a good teacher, that's good. Is he God? Would you be willing to say to someone who you work with that you believe Jesus is God? As soon as you make him God and remove him from just being a good teacher, you'll run into conflict. Because people don't have a trouble with good teachers, they can ignore them. But if you're saying he's God, then that put an, puts an onus on them to respond to him in one way or another. Usually that'll be negative. That's life. Jesus warned us that that was going to happen. The world will not treat us any differently to the way it treated him. So, is he God? Are you happy to own that? And the, and the results that'll bring. That's all I have for today. Um, Thank you for your attention.